Welcome to Gathering Gold, a podcast for highly sensitive souls. I'm Cheryl Paul, a counselor trained in the Jungian depth psychological tradition. And I'm Victoria Russell, Cheryl's niece and co-host. This podcast explores some of the themes highlighted in my book, The Wisdom of Anxiety, and my Conscious Transitions blog. Join us as we dive into the realms of our inner worlds to ask deep questions, grow more self-trust and self-love, and embrace sensitivity, creativity, and the rhythms of the natural world. If you would like to connect with me, Victoria, and others in the Gathering Gold listener community and support the podcast to help us continue our work, please consider joining our Patreon at patreon.com slash gatheringgold. To learn more about Cheryl's course offerings, including courses to support you in breaking free from anxiety in all forms, learning to trust yourself, and becoming more comfortable with uncertainty, please visit Cheryl's website, conscious-transitions.com. You can also find us on Instagram. Cheryl is at Wisdom of Anxiety, and I am at Perennials Podcast. Thank you for listening. Today, we have a very special guest on the podcast. Actually, our first guest. It's so far just been me and Cheryl in these episodes, but we wanted to invite someone who you may have heard of if you have been following Cheryl's work for a long time. He's come up in her blog posts. Maybe you've heard about him in her course materials. I am, of course, talking about Dave Finn, who is Cheryl's husband and my uncle. Hmm. Dave is an artist, psychotherapist, and former visual effects artist, and a recent graduate of depth psychology from Pacifica Graduate Institute. And Dave has been doing a lot of writing on Medium lately, beautiful essays about father wounds and father-son relationships and struggles. And that's why we wanted to have him on now in particular as we approach Father's Day to talk about some of those topics and his experiences of being a father to two very highly sensitive boys. Cheryl, is there anything that you would like to say as we enter this conversation? I'm just giddy with excitement to share my beautiful husband with our beautiful audience, sharing his wisdom with you and his heart and his soul and his, his poetic nature and the goodness of who he is as a human and as a father. And I could just start weeping right now with how much I love him and how grateful I am that we found each other. Um, tomorrow is in fact our wedding anniversary. So one day before this recording and how grateful I am that we um, have been so very blessed to have children together. And we both knew pretty early on that we would bring children into this world together. Dave knew before I did, but, um, but I also knew. So I, it is with tremendous excitement and joy that I share my beloved husband with you. Well, thank you both for that very warm welcome. I'm honored to be here. And I'm honored to be um, introduced to your audience. I hope that I can do justice to your podcast and and offer whatever wisdom I can. I thought it would be helpful for people to hear a little bit about your background, Dave, and um, particularly, of course, your relationship with your dad, but also just your family structure and number of siblings. You have a um, unique story. I mean, I know everybody does, but in particular to this topic on the father wound, giving sort of the, the, the overview of your childhood and your relationship with your dad. Okay. Well, I'm the oldest son in, in a family of 10. So I, I had, um, 
five sisters. I mean, I have five sisters still and two brothers and my mom and my dad, an Irish Italian Catholic family, uh, which explains why so many kids. And at a time when people were just having much bigger families, you know, my mom and dad got married after World War II sometime. My dad was, you know, an engineer and my mom was a graphic artist. They moved to uh, central Jersey from more northern Jersey, where both of them grew up. And uh, we had a pretty big piece of land and great big house. And so a lot of my childhood memories are not just around the family, but around this home. And I think my siblings would probably agree that the home itself, the house, took on a certain presence in our our life. You know, there's a certain character that gets added to a family mm-hmm. based on where they live and where they grow up. Mm-hmm. So that certainly was a big part of our our upbringing. And despite a lot of the things that we encountered later, having that as sort of a a bedrock to start, I think, was sort of a leg up that a lot of people don't have. So having some land and being able to play outside and use our imaginations and go through the beautiful neighborhoods that we lived in near near the bay, looking out at New York City. My dad worked really hard, though, and my mom worked really hard because a lot of people. And uh, my dad, when I was eight years old, had a stroke. So he had a stroke, and it was a serious stroke. And what happened was it left him paralyzed on the left side, and he was unable to work. And so what happened was that threw us into poverty and threw us into kind of a controlled chaos. You know, when you have that many people, there's somebody who's always trying to help, you know, carry weight in the family. But, you know, with that, there's also still a lack. You know, my mom was dealing with now trying to take care of a sick husband who was partly paralyzed and, uh, and depressed after he came home from the hospital. And then my dad just wasn't the same. You know, the the person that he was had had really changed, at least, you know, to an eight-year-old boy. Uh, my experience was that dad had, cha- had changed. He went from being somebody who could build things with his hands, fix any car, and, you know, during the war, he was part of a crew who would go out into the field and they would pull parts from downed airplanes in Germany and France and they would put them back together and get them back up and that's who my dad was you know and he he could fix things and he worked on the house and he fixed things and um, and suddenly he wasn't able to do that anymore. What happened in our family is that there was just a lot of loss. And it wasn't really loss that we talked about. It was just more like something we dealt with. Mm-hmm. And everybody's probably going to remember their own roles in the family differently. But what I remember in the family is uh, what I've described to both of you as being my dad's hands. We would climb under the car together, which was probably the most dangerous thing we did. And he would pull things apart and I would help him take things apart under the car and try to put things back together. And, you know, I was just a kid and I wasn't really super patient with it either. I was just like, I didn't even know what I was doing. So I don't think I really even appreciated necessarily always being his hands or what I could have gotten out of it all the time. But it was also sort of a around the clock position. I think the the thing that where the father wound comes in and what I've talked about in my article online uh, last week is that, um, you know, for me, it became what I refer to as the Fisher King wound. And my dad was the Fisher King. And I became like Parseval, who was trying to find the grail that would heal him. Mm. And the myth of the Fisher King is that the father is 
wounded by something or the king is wounded by something and the entire kingdom is thrown into chaos and it suffers and the crops fail because the king has been wounded and he can't die and he can't heal. So while my dad was sick, I became the person who, I mean, I guess I became his primary caretaker and I spent a lot of my time with him in the bedroom where he stayed. And I would go to church with him on Sundays up the, the steps, but we, would, we wouldn't actually go into the church. We'd go to the sacristy and the priest would allow us to have a couple little chairs uh, so we could see the whole service, but we wouldn't have to go through hundreds of people to do that. So, you know, my memory is being there to dress my dad and take care of him and be with him. And I, I think, you know, others in my family might have similar memories. I don't, I don't really know. I can only speak about my experience. Mm-hmm. But my experience was that quite a bit of my time like revolved around being there for dad and uh, not necessarily getting anything back because, you know, as I said, he became the wounded Fisher King. And he, he was just sort of lost in himself. And it's not even really something that I understand fully what happened to him. But it's something that I've always had to to grapple with. Mm. So he he never recovered, and we didn't really have the support to get physical therapy or things that he would need in that nature. Mm. So there was there was no round two. There wasn't a oh, what if you did this in your life? You know, mm-hmm. it was it was more like people just sort of forgot about people once they got sick if you were poor. And then when I was 18, I went off to college and I, I was only gone a month and uh, he had a massive stroke and uh, I got home in time, but uh, he had died uh, that night. Hmm. And that was October of? still feel the pain of it yeah and I still feel like that vibration in my chest when I talk about it and you know and I'm trying to be careful like how much I disclose and talk about as mm-hmm. I'm share mm-hmm. about it as well mm-hmm. and so that grief that loss and your being so close to him physically but so far away in so many ways and then going off to college and being an artist the whole time, right? Being born an artist and going off to, to do art in college. Um, and somehow through that, staying connected to your emotional life as best you could. How is it that you've been able to be so emotionally present for our two sons as highly sensitive. We are all four highly sensitive people, but boys so often receive the message. I think even more than girls, even though we all receive it of buck up, man up, you're too sensitive, get over it. Stop being such a wuss. Stop crying. Walk it off. Walk it off. It's one of my favorites. (laughs) (laughs) Build a bridge, get over it. You have never even remotely intimated, like none of that is even in your vocabulary, in your way of thinking. You have infinite space for hard feelings, mine included. And, you know, I think some of it is just who you are. Um, But I know you've also done a lot of work on yourself to have more access to your emotional life. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Um, I mean, one of the things that we talked about earlier was just that experience when I was a kid of before my dad had the stroke, you know, like any boy, I looked up to my dad and he was my hero and he had these cool things like uh, he had this beautiful collection of airplanes made out of paper mache and balsa wood that he had meticulously created along 
this bookshelf at the end of the balcony. And um, he would work hard and then he would come home at the end of the day. Um, and I would go outside and I'd wait on the stairs for hours for him to come home from work. And so my, my experience is sort of twofold. On the one hand, some days he used to come home and he would pull something out of his briefcase for me, like uh, a stack of paper that he had gotten from like recycled paper pile. This was before they were like recycling paper, but it has stuff that had been printed on one side already. Mm-hmm. And he knew I wanted to draw. And so I think in some respects, I internalized being seen like that. And he knew that I already was, you know, really wanted to draw and be an artist, Mm. you know, as well as my mother, she supported all that as well. And on the other hand, there was this pain of like waiting every day for my dad and, and some awareness, I think that there's just sort of this lack of having dad around all the time. And I, I carried that with me, you know, maybe that's part of my, my Parseval uh, searching for dad, uh, or maybe it's part of my own Fisher King wound and not having dad present. Hmm. And so what I did was I, I just sort of decided that I didn't want to be an absent father. Um, and that's sort of a tall order in a world where you have to make uh, money and have a career and there's something you know tied to men about their career and i've struggled with that side too you know how do you balance career and meaning in life and still be present for your kids in a healthy way yeah and you've done such an amazing job and we we mostly you have made sacrifices that was part of our decision to leave los angeles and to leave visual effects and 70 80 hours a week knowing Mm -hmm. that you were not going, we only had one son at that point, but you were not seeing Everest. And mm-hmm. it was a challenging road once we moved to Colorado career wise. But I think we've, the thing we've always come back to is, but look at our sons. And I just have to insert in here for anybody who has followed me for a while and knows that Everest is an aviator, that um, how extraordinary, you know, we, it never ceases to amaze us the passing down of that passion and that interest, mm-hmm. right. That you've My mentioned. Dad. Yeah. Your dad, you've mentioned it twice, his work in the war and mm-hmm. then him making those balsa wood airplanes, which Everest of course has all kinds of models in his room mm-hmm. of airplanes. And he's at civil air patrol at this very moment. So mm-hmm. that link is always quite astonishing and beautiful to us. Um, but the piece, so, so to make those sacrifices to be physically present, for our sons and for family life, which has not always been easy. Our world does, our culture does not make that easy for men or for women, but I think possibly more so for men because so much of self-worth is tied to making money and career identity, but the emotional availability, your infinite capacity to be emotionally present for our sons when they've been angry, when they are sad, when they're struggling, when they're happy. One of the things that I love most about you is your willingness to self-reflect and to look inward and to go to therapy and to love therapy as much as I do. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think the thing about therapy is, you know, something I tell my clients all the time is um, when you have trauma in your life or loss, what happens is it can be like having like a big rubber band connected to your chest and it's getting pulled as you get stressed out in life more and more. And as you're going through things, you're not really sure. You feel the tension, you feel it building up this pressure, but it's not until something happens and that that rubber band snaps back to you, that you get this rush of feeling. And, you know, that did happen to me uh, at some point in my my career where I felt very stressed out. Mm-hmm. I was working long hours and um, that rubber band snapped for me. And so that rubber band was charged with all that trauma that I went through as a kid, 
all the loss, all the different experiences I had. And, you know, there were other experiences in there too, being bullied as a kid all Mm -hmm. the time, Mm -hmm. you know, um, struggling with my asthma from an early age, you know, is another thing that I had to deal with. And when that came back and hit me, it, it didn't just like it, I didn't just fall into a puddle and start crying. It was more like I got really angry Mm -hmm. and really pissed off. And the nice guy that was taking everything in stride and I didn't even swear, I think, till I was like 20 years old. What? And, <laughs> I know. Swearing's like your to... second language. <laughs> I know. See, I let it out now. <laughs> the New Jersey State bird is the middle finger. <laughs> yeah. In case anyone didn't know. <laughs> There's a lesson. There's a lesson here, right? <laughs> <laughs> I was very Catholic, you know, and, and uh mm-hmm. It's not even just that. I think that there's a certain propriety that I had, you know, and maybe we had in our family. And I see it in my dad and my mom, and I see it in Everest and Asher. Like there's just that sense of right and wrong. Mm. But I think that that can also be a release valve. And uh, and I think that there were a whole bunch of release valves that I missed along the way after my dad died and processing all the different things that I went through. Mm. And so I got stressed out and then I got angry. And finally I had a manager who talked to me about it and he said, we don't know what to do. And I said, well, I can go talk to a therapist. And he said, will you? (laughs) And Mm -hmm. I, it was just sort of like mind blowing. I was like, yeah, of course. And and it was sort of this like lack of awareness, self-awareness that I had, that I was just pushing people away. I was irritable angry and that's when I started therapy and that was god um I don't know 1997 maybe Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about anger for men and Jeremy Taylor the dream worker once said that anger and I'm sure there's other people who have said this that anger is the only acceptable emotion for men and that every every other emotion tends to get funneled into anger, at least first. Yeah. And I know as a parent, it's not really possible to parent in a present way if you're actually really parenting without losing it sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's sort of like the worst part of parenting. And we we have both, you know, lost our cool with our kids, lost our temper. Mm-hmm. Um but I'm just curious, I'm thinking about any men, any dads listening, maybe who grew up with angry fathers or withdrawn fathers, because anger doesn't always look like yelling. It can also look like withdrawal um, sure. and stony silence and hu- husbands, fathers who are now trying to be more emotionally available. But what still comes out a lot is anger and just what your experience with anger has been and you know maybe still is yeah so one thing that comes out i mean there's the stony silence there's sarcasm there's those little digs that the passive aggressive stuff that men are good at doing but it's all part of this anger and i think one of the things that happens with men a lot is that anger is almost like a wall around around us Mm. and it's almost like we have to work, blast our way through it like a stick of dynamite Mm. to get to some emotion and to have like that uh, catharsis. And, and I'm not saying that like, that's a good thing. I'm saying that the, that wall is put there because we have, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of years of being told to man up, Mm -hmm. big boys don't cry, walk it off. Uh, You know, we have so many different ways of sort of shutting down emotions in boys and as they become men they just they don't even know how to express themselves anymore and then when it gets too big like i said it becomes like that rubber band snapping like all that energy is just is under tension mm-hmm. and then it's all released at once and it becomes like this huge blowout the problem is that you know if people don't know how to deal with that anger then it never maybe it doesn't go into catharsis. And often a lot of people, they suppress that, any feeling underneath that, because all they know is anger. And so then they do things like use alcohol and drugs Mm -hmm. and 
other things to sort of suppress any chance that any of that emotion has coming up. Yeah. And so then that gets passed down instead of it's such a huge ask. I think what we're asking of men, what, what women are wanting of men, what children are wanting of men to, to be more vulnerable, right? Mm -hmm. It's like vulnerability is the word of the day. And we're all trying to be more vulnerable if we're on any kind of path of healing and working with our defenses. And so underneath that anger is such immense vulnerability. But if you never saw that modeled, it's really hard to know how to access that place and especially how to lead from that place. Yeah, I I agree. And also I, I think the thing is that often right beneath all that, you know, behind that, that brick wall is really a vulnerable man who isn't that angry outer shell. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, so often you hear from men who just want to be connected to their significant other in life, but they don't know how to get there and they don't know how to express it. And Mm -hmm. so it comes out as passive aggressive, it comes out as arguments and it comes out as loneliness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I have two questions coming to mind and I'm also super curious, Victoria, who's silently sitting there in the wings. <laughs> I have two questions coming to mind, but I'm curious what's stirring in your fabulous brain and heart in this conversation. I think one thing that just came to my mind was I was wondering what catharsis looks like for you. Uh, well, catharsis for me is really a good cry and just letting the tears really shed. And, you know, I'll give you an example is when I drove last weekend to drive Everest, our oldest son, to Colorado Springs, he, he spent a week at the Air Force Academy. And when I dropped him off, I just found myself going to tears a lot. And it was, it was like a, that rubber band getting snapped again, but in a much different way, because, you know, it's not about anger. It was just, it was maybe some of the loss in life and that loss of how brief life is, you know, to be at this age, I'm 56 now, and my son is 17. And after all this work and all this rebuilding of life, and uh, going up to the Air Force Academy, and, and then to have this experience where I saw him in my mind as a little boy, underneath the B-52 out front, um, this enormous airplane, when he was just like eight or nine years old. And so all that rushed into me, and that was felt like a cathartic moment. It was just where real emotions come through. And it's not about anger, but there's loss and there's some pain there as well. And, and some beauty because, you know, we've, you know, just kind of created this special life together, our, our family and in special to us, special to me. So I was feeling that loss in those moments. Yeah. And is that something that Everest and Asher have seen? Like, do they see you express emotion like that? Um, I don't think they do too often, honestly. And mm. I, I, think, I think that's part of the block, which is a really good question, because I think this is one of the things with men is, you know, I'm trying to think like if I've seen this in like sitcoms, and I know I have over the years, where men like, they get emotional, but what do they do? They, they punch each other in the arm. And they yeah. brush it off. We just have like such a veneer of like being a guy and being a dude, you know, and being, you know, like just brushing it off. And or they make a joke or they're like, oh, there's something in my yeah. eye. Or- yeah, there's something in my eye, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and I'm guilty of it. Like I feel like my body vibrate and like it, I'm going to break into tears. And then I feel that part of me that's like, do not, do not do that. And uh, for whatever reason you know, because I'm a guy. Mm. Such a great question, Victoria. And I think our boys know that Dave has access to his emotions and they certainly know that he goes to therapy and we go to couples therapy and we're not afraid to talk about emotions, but it's a great question. How often have they seen 
their dad like break down and cry. Mm-hmm. I'm not I'm not sure that they have. Yeah. In fact, we were at dinner and Everest was away and I was talking about something a few weeks back and maybe a couple months ago. I can't remember where Everest was. And I was explaining something and I was getting choked up and starting to cry. It was, mm-hmm. I think it was something about my dad. And uh, Asher was like, what's wrong? What's wrong with you? Like he didn't, it was so unexpected for him. He didn't even know what was happening. Hmm. Yeah. I think it will plant a seed that just that question, right? That what would it be like to let yourself cry? Like mm-hmm. really break down in front of our kids. I know they've seen you cry and I know they, they, they've seen tears come to your eyes, particularly mm-hmm. talking about your dad, but it's a lot for a man to really show that kind of cathartic, that kind of true breaking down, sobbing emotion. Mm-hmm. It's even a lot for you to let me see. Yeah, definitely. Right. Yeah. I mean, it definitely, I mean, there's definitely that block that even prevents me from sharing it with you. And I do feel it well up. It's almost like, you know, it's like, oh, this is a private, this is private. You don't share that, Mm. you know? And I think that what's embedded in that is that sense of this is a weakness, you know, that men get. Whether I buy into that consciously or not, it's my, I feel myself seizing up. and um, tightening my lips and, you know, doing whatever I can not to give in. So, Father's Day is approaching and What's coming to mind for me is this place that I think comes up for a lot of men, which is I'm never doing enough. I'm never good enough. No matter what I do, it's not enough. Mm -hmm. And I don't know where that place comes from. It seems to be sort of across the board um, for men of I'm, I'm always failing in some way, or I'm going to fail in some way, but I'm curious. And I know this is hard for you because you're such a humble person. What are the things you're most proud of in terms of raising our sons? Uh, so let me think. I mean, I think I'm most proud of still feeling connected to my sons because mm-hmm. as boys reach their teens, parents, fathers often get pushed to the side. And so far, I still think that we're connected. I feel proud of the boys and the men that they're growing up into. And I think I'm spacing out on the question now. I'm starting to like forget <laughs> the dissociating because it's, yeah. <laughs> <too hard. laughs> it's too hard. Yeah. It's too hard to give myself credit for anything. So I'm going to change the, the question altogether. <laughs> let's, let's focus back on my failings. <laughs> yeah. Much more comfortable territory. I think yeah. it's important to say, especially for any men listening who have very young children and young sons, that it's not an accident that you're still connected to your kids. It's because of, I think a couple of things, maybe three things that are coming to mind right now. One is you are the biggest champion for their interests, no matter what those interests are, no matter how those interests scare the bejesus out of us. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that Everest wants to be an astronaut and you saw that before I did. I just couldn't bear the thought, but you, you saw it mm-hmm. and you have supported that from literally day one, bringing him to all those airplane museums and every book you could find and, um, joining him. And so it's the joy, the way that you join our sons in their interests is so phenomenal and so beautiful and makes them feel so seen. And I love that you referenced your dad in that. I had never heard you say it quite like that before, that both your parents really did see you as an artist and Mm -hmm. and support that in you. And then Asher 
being a magician, which is, you know, also kind of a, you know, out there, like, whoa, what, what, what's that path going to be like? But mm-hmm. you have been all in and you watch videos with him and you read books and you listen to podcasts and you take that time to see them and support who they are and their passions and their interests. So that's number one. Um, Number two, which is related, but you put the time in to maintain the connection. So every night you spend time with both of them Mm -hmm. one-on-one. So you have the time with Asher and it's just the sweetest sound in the world to hear you, the two of you who are like, cut from the same cloth, especially your sense of humor and your creativity, just laughing your heads off and improvising and telling jokes. Mm -hmm. And then you have, you know, that time with Everest, who is almost 18 years old and still wants that time with you every single night. And I know you've worried at times, is Everest pushing me away? Does he not need me anymore? And it's been such a painful wondering for you, Mm -hmm. but those have just been, you know, temporary, like an hour here or there, or, you know, Mm -hmm. a couple of days or something where he's just been in, you know, his mood or whatever it is, but the bond is so deep. Um, And then I would say the third piece is that you have, as we've said, always accepted and made room for their emotional lives. You've, you've not shamed them. You have supported, you know, as best we can. I mean, everything from like, don't swap mosquitoes. It's like, Mm -hmm. okay, we'll, we'll do our best not to swap mosquitoes because we know how much it hurts them. Um, and you know, I don't know many dads, honestly, who would not swat a mosquito to support (laughs) their son's sensitivity and to really just be that champion for who they are in their essence, not just their passions, not even just their emotional life, but their heart and their, their beautiful sensitivity that, that you also find beautiful, even though you have a hard time sometimes showing the depth of your own emotions, you've, you've never shunned or shamed theirs ever. Yeah. Thank you one of the ways that I try to orient to them all the time is just try to stay interested in what they're interested in. And it's almost like allowing their interest to fuse into me. And I think this is something where, you know, a lot of dads want to connect with their kids and watch a sports game. And, and maybe that works a lot of the time. I'm not a sport guy. Maybe I was a sports guy when I was like watched baseball when I was a kid, but um, I'm not like that. And we've talked about watching for that spark, you know, in them, that little ember of an interest. And Mm -hmm. it just seems so important to try to figure out what that ember is when they're young and not, not project your own interests onto them so that they get a false sense of self and suddenly they're playing basketball or baseball or something because I did, or they want to become an artist because I made them really want to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's a certain amount of letting go and just to do that and paying attention, which means, you know, trying to spend time with them and really listen for it. Like we've both done over the years. Yeah. And talked about like us, talking about these things and bouncing the, these things off each other all the time. Mm. You know, what are we, what are we seeing here? You know, what is this interest? The mm. first time Everest looked up at the moon and said moon, you know, when he was a barely what a year old, mm-hmm. le- less than two years old, noticing that he loved going to the airport before he was even two years old and then just following him. And I think the importance of that is just that there are so many kids, so many boys in particular who are lost and um, they don't know what to do. Yeah. And, and our opportunity, our time with them to help them figure that out is so brief. And maybe that's part of what that emotion was coming up where it felt super sad when I was at the Air Force Academy, but it also felt 
super sweet too. Like, mm. holy heck, how do we do this? Here he is, you know, all these years later and he's wearing a uniform and he looks like he's in the Air Force. Mm. I just, you know, trying to stay connected to them and, and then trying every once in a while, like when I do feel that, am I losing them? Trying to listen, listen more and knowing that I have to read the same books that they're reading if I want to stay connected seems like a big thing. If, if they were into sports, then we would watch sports together. Mm-hmm. But Everest mm-hmm. loves aerospace and he loves uh, American history and naval history. So I listen to those books and then we have a lot more common ground to keep talking about things. You're such an amazing dad. You're <laughs> <laughs> just such an amazing dad. And really, I feel like this episode on father wound is and fathering is is also my chance to celebrate you and really honor you as this just truly extraordinary father to our boys. And I, and I want to say, you know, as I often say about myself, not, not perfect. Like mm-hmm. for anybody listening, we have made a hundred mistakes. We've made a thousand mistakes. Mm-hmm. I think one thing we do really well is we make repairs when we, when we mess up and mm-hmm. we're not afraid as soon as possible, whether that's in 30 minutes or, or two hours, or, you know, usually never even to the next day to, to come back in and to say, I'm, I'm sorry, I messed up, mm-hmm. you know, and, and we do model that for them as well, that we, we mess up and we apologize and we try to do better. Yeah, we try to do better. And, uh, you know, there's a recalibration. There's no part of me that listens to you saying, how good a father I am. That's like, oh, shucks, I'm such a good father. You know, I'm like, okay, I do my best. Like a lot of good dads were trying to do their best. And and it's just going to look different for everybody. But I think part of it is just trying to keep attuned to your kid and not squash him. You know, just yeah. don't squash him. Right. Don't squash their emotions. Don't squash their interests. Don't squash how they express themselves. Right. Letting them be who they are completely. Yeah. And I think, you know, we talked early on in our marriage about the whole problem with even trying to keep kids' emotions under check. So you go to the shopping center and you're trying to do some grocery shopping and you got your two-year-old with you (laughs) and they throw a meltdown in the canned (laughs) fruit, right? And (laughs) you're trying to you're trying to shop and you have a five-year-old and a two-year-old and you're trying to figure out how to keep it all together. Mm-hmm. And, and people look at you like, get your kids under control. And, you know, there's this shaming that happens in our culture as well yes. about everyone should always be under control. And if you aren't, if they aren't under control and they're brats and you're doing something wrong. Mm-hmm. I think we would both agree. One of the hardest parts of parenting for us has been parenting siblings Mm -hmm. and maybe in particular two boys. I don't know. We don't know because that's what we have, but maybe even in particular two boys who have spent a lot of time with their dad and sort of that primal sibling rivalry. Who's, who's going to get more bananas, you know, whatever it is. Um, Mm -hmm. But the biggest fights that they've had, the biggest yelling that's come from us has without a doubt been around sibling stuff. And I know from my clients who have young kids and especially boys that we are not alone in -hmm. that it is exceedingly challenging. It has tapered off for sure. It's not entirely gone, but I think we have entered a different stage now that they're 13 and 17 finally. Mm -hmm. Um, so I'm just curious if you can speak to that at all, what light you might shed or even just like a lifeline for anyone who might be struggling with that right now. I think the thing that happens with, with children, maybe our boys, is that no matter how many kids there are in a family, the perception is that there's never enough. Uh, never enough time with mom and dad. So even if I say, well, I, I've tried to give as much time with my sons as, as 
humanly possible, that doesn't mean that that's their experience of of me. You know, so their experience might be, why is dad always working? And I've I've heard, you know, um, are you gonna now that you graduated from school, are you gonna stop putting in the late hours? So there's some of that. Mm-hmm. But I think that extends to everything. You know, it's just maybe there is something primal in that. There's not enough bananas, even though there's plenty of bananas, um, you know, for us. And I think there's that trigger. But I, I think most of it has to do with this emotional, you know, not enough bananas is really, is there enough love? And even though we we try to give as much love to our kids as possible, they look at each other and they think, and they wonder, like, does he love me? Does he love me enough? Mm. And I think that goes in. Even though we've tried to, you know, we we try to um, support their emotional needs and their self-expression, that it still comes out in an angry way. Mm-hmm. Comes out as a dig instead of vulnerability, because I think boys and men, it is easier to go to anger. You know, it's not even just about what we've been taught, but it's also just about a biological difference where we have testosterone, which just makes us into you know, monkeys sometimes. We just start pant hooting and going bonkers when something isn't going our way. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Dave, if you could imagine that there's someone listening who's a dad. Maybe he's in his mid thirties or early forties or somewhere in there. And he has, you know, a couple of young kids and he's feeling alone and he's feeling isolated and he's feeling overwhelmed. And maybe he's feeling disconnected from his wife, his partner, you know, the focus is on the, on the kids. And those early years are so challenging with sleep and food, just everything is really pretty hard and and still getting career going. And, and just what you might say as a lifeline to a younger dad who probably has a father wound of his own, who wasn't at the very least, even if he had an available dad physically, very rare to have an emotionally available father. And so here's someone who's trying to do better, who's trying to be more emotionally available, who's trying to be more patient, but really struggling. Mm -hmm. I think to finish up what I would talk about, it's it's sort of uh, straddles the two different articles that I wrote. And one is about using Joe versus a volcano as sort of a metaphor for a man coming into himself and how we are on a journey of you know self-discovery and but you don't you don't get there if you don't set out on the journey and if you don't risk everything and by doing that you go along the way and you you get to have the experience of running into people who can be guides along the way in fairy tales, you know, we're so used to this idea that Cinderella has a fairy godmother. Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz has the Good Witch, which is really the fairy godmother. Mm-hmm. But men generally don't have like that metaphor for what else. Like when you get out there in life, who's out there when you didn't have a, the great role model for what a dad looks like? Mm-hmm. And I think the message is that we men have to be open to finding those role models, those, those fairy godfathers, you know, so to speak, out there in the world. And we just aren't used to having that metaphor to carry in our lives. And so the first step is really about men trying to be open to this journey and this failing, this failing and finding themselves through failing. Mm. And then the second part is um, is about being a dad. And once you start building up that lattice work of what you believe a good dad is, and you start 
having that voice inside of you that guides you, then you get to start discovering the kind of dad you want to be. Mm. You know, whether it's somebody who um, has high morals or watches sports or, you know, dances with your kids, that's what you get to decide to do. How engaged do you want to be with your kids? And I think the thing is that for kids, dad being around is the most important thing. Dad being present. It doesn't matter if you're imperfect. Your kids just remember you and want you to be around. And that is one of the greatest gifts. And when we think about psychology, you know, part of the the whole uh, relationship with a therapist is about that relationship. It's Mm -hmm. a healing relationship. And if we can have that experience with our father, then maybe we won't struggle as much and get so lost along the way as we're kids and as we're growing up to the next generation. Mm. Beautiful. I'm going to extract about a minute of that and make you listen to yourself over and over again. (laughs) (laughs) The part where you said being present and showing up is enough because you have done that in spades. And I think this podcast is going to be such a gift to any, any dad who is lucky enough to listen to it. And I know, know, again, the vast majority of our audience is female, but we're hoping that it will get passed on to dads and husbands and, and grown sons because you are such a gift and your words are a gift. And thank you. Thank you for being here with us. Yeah. I'm just thinking about all the people listening and like how much emotion I think there might be for people listening to this Mm. and just like the longing that so many people are going to feel, Mm. but also how held people will feel just by hearing you. So Mm. thank you. Yeah. Thank you. If you want to find out more about Dave and his work, you can read his articles at Medium. So that's medium.com slash at Dave, D-A-E-V dot Finn, F-I-N-N. And I'll put a link on our episode page. And you can also find him at the Integrating Insights website. Also, we have some fun Patreon events coming up this month and next month. So For meetup members, we have a virtual meetup happening June 26th, 4 p.m. Eastern time, where Cheryl will guide us through a ritual and sharing and just some casual conversation. You can find out more at patreon.com slash gathering gold. And in July, our Patreon community is welcome to join a Wise Child book club. So Cheryl and I talked a bit about the book Wise Child by Monica Furlong in our Mother Wound episode, and I'll be leading a book club meeting July 17th, 4 p.m. Eastern time on Zoom for those who want to read the book and talk about it together. Hope to see you there.